Welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, silent assassin Matt Costa, moving those pods around. How are you tonight, Matt? I'm doing excellent, excellent. as always. And uh, you, you recognize this guy over here to my left? Bigfoot? No, not Bigfoot. Uh, at least not until the DNA tests come back. We're not sure just yet. But science advisor Matt Moniz is back in the studio. Can you believe it? I should recognize him. He's all over the place now. That's true. He is. He's the paranormal rock star. Uh, has there officially has MattMoniz.com opened up yet so people can track your adventures all over the world? Not yet. Not yet, but you're working on it. I want to see if, you know, since you've been working so much with Dr. Ron Millione, I'm going to see if Ron can install a GPS chip like behind your ear and give us some sort of uh, device where we can track where you are at any given time. That that might be uh, in the works. You know Ron. He, That's true. He can invent all kinds of crazy stuff. Well, the greatest thing, did were they, were they, uh, did they have the dude run box at Eastern States last yes, week? Yes, they did. We had a lot of fun with that. Yeah, that was that was great at the Lizzie Borden house. He had this little box that he created that when you press the button, you hear Brian yell, dude, run. Well, somebody made a bobblehead of uh, Brian and... Somebody put one of those chips underneath the thing, and, you know, it became a great little gag. Wow. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and get one of those. Now, uh, for those of you uh, not familiar with uh, Matt, Momin- Matt Moniz's uh, job here, if you have been just joining our show in the last couple of weeks, he is our science advisor and co-host. Uh, he does keep us in line and keep us, uh, you know, asking the right questions. And the last couple of weeks, we've either had him out on assignment for the show or he's been out doing other things uh, related to that role as science advisor, and you weren't even supposed to be here tonight, actually. There was like three or four investigations that you were invited right. to this weekend. Right, and uh, unfortunately, I was unable to attend any of them. I'm still trying to move into my new house, and it's been like, what, almost a month. Yeah, uh, but if you uh, if you would like to acquire Matt Moniz's services for any kind of investigation, just email us, spookycrew at spookysouthcoast.com. Uh, he'll take any any offer at all, I'm sure. Right. I work for food. Okay. Uh, but we do have an incredible night planned for you tonight because we have a very special guest. We have author Brad Steiger joining us tonight. And, uh, you know, last night we were at the Cape and Islands Paranormal Research Society's open meeting, and they had Jeff Belanger, who is the mayor of ghostvillage.com and an author himself. Uh, he was their special guest, and when we were talking to him after the presentation, he said, who's your guest tomorrow night? And we said, well, you have Brad Steiger on. And he's like, oh, are you going to have a great time with him? And so we will, and we will talk to Brad about all aspects of the paranormal. If you'd like to join into this discussion, please, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. The Internet's still not working, Matt? No. Okay. So you can't send your questions uh, via the message board at SpookySouthCoast.com, but we're going to try to come up with something we can do to get around that. But s- s- the best way to get us is by phone, 508 996 Five zero eight two nine one zero five hundred about any and all things paranormal. So why don't we uh, jump right into it with our guest tonight, Brad Steiger. He's the author or co-author of 162 books with over 17 million copies in print. And, uh, he, you know, his forte is the paranormal. He's written about all different aspects of the paranormal, the strange and unusual, uh, conspiracies, uh, just spiritual books, all different kinds of things. But he's also written uh, some fiction, uh, biographies of Judy Garland, Jim Thorpe, Rudolph Valentino, uh, true crime books. I mean, he's had over 2,000 articles published with paranormal themes, and he used to write a weekly newspaper column, The Strange World of Brad Steiger. So he's got plenty of writing credit. Uh, <laughs> it, it makes me feel, you know, uh, here I am coming on the show all the time saying, well, you know, I'm a writer with my day job. I'm not, I'm not a writer. 
definitely one of my heroes growing up. You know, like I said, I've been doing paranormal research almost 25 years, circa 1982, and all of his books are stuff I used to devour. And you can't call yourself a writer if you can't crank if you can't crank out 162 books. How have you written that many books, Brad? <laughs> well, what was that? You can't call your writer unless unless you've written 162 books. No, oh that, that's the definition goodness. of writer right there. Oh my goodness! Well, you know they say a writer writes, and uh, obviously, that's right. yeah, that's right. No, I'm happy in my work, and you know I started young, and I was very fortunate. Uh, I got in on just the tail end of that marvelous period that you and most of your audience won't even know anything about, and that was the marvelous pulp era, where all those magazines used to be on the stands in every supermarket, every drugstore. They're gone now. There are really no markets for the young author to break in, and that's very sad. But what we do have, and this is kind of a mixed blessing, of course, is the Internet. Because now, quote, unquote, anyone can, you know, do a print-on-demand book. And some of those, you know, they really do require editing. And some people really haven't learned the English language and semantics and syntax and so forth. And and uh, it, it's, very, it's fascinating to see, guys, what's going to happen in the next 10 years. I don't think anyone can predict the internet just is is an incredible an incredible outlet when the internet first came i thought it was the antichrist for sure i mean because <laughs> when i got my first set i turned it on and there incredibly was a porno site i didn't send for it i didn't want it my wife says my gosh what's that and we thought what is this you know and then we see what a marvelous research tool it can be so it, it, it's strange now, and then we have DVDs, we we have so much that we didn't have way back, you know, in 1956 when I began writing. Well, you know, it's strange, we were talking about it on the way in here tonight, we were talking about the state of paranormal radio, and how basically everybody and his brother now is able to put on a, a radio show because you can do one sitting from home in front of your computer. And, you know, here we are, you know, trudging into the studio, like, uh, all these other people got it easy, you know, they just sit in their living room and turn on the computer, and, and they're on the air. That That is very true. And again, you know, this this is... Uh, everything, I guess, is a mixed blessing. It's a two, two-edged sword, as we used to say. When I, Whenever I would do a radio show back in the 50s, early 60s, if it was in Pittsburgh, I went to Pittsburgh. If it was in New York, I went to New York. Here again, now, I'm just sitting comfortably in my sweats, you know, talking over the <laughs> phone to you. Well, that, that's an incredible kind of advantage, that we can have this kind of communication. It is, and, absolutely. And the other thing, excuse me, is so many positive shows. When I first started out, I mean, <laughs> there, there weren't two friendly Matts and one friendly Tim talking to me. I mean, almost every program I did was adversarial, mm-hmm. you know, where they were attacking me for my strange, beliefs and my strange books and my weird research. I mean, it, it was not a friendly atmosphere going out and doing promotion in those days. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah, even today, there's so many uh, authors in, in the genre who will only get a phone call at Halloween time. Yeah, well, that's true. That's true. And again, there's, there's one, you mentioned uh, my good friend Jeff Belanger. 
one thing I have found so refreshing, and I hope it stays, is that the young crop of researchers like Jeff, like Joshua Warren, they recognize, and I'm not saying I'm to be exalted, it's not that, but they recognize the literature. They recognize the authors that came before me. They recognize where I fit in the niche, and they recognize that they're carrying on a tradition. So many of the young writers, I can tell, uh, they've watched two or three programs on Discovery Channel and read a couple books, and they feel they're experts. Mm -hmm. They think they're researchers. They think they're writers. And they just don't have the knowledge of the field and of what's gone before. And that's very important if we're to keep the quality of the work up. Absolutely. I mean, when you get into our end of things, you know, somebody uh, knowledgeable in the field like, uh, you know, John Zaffis, Keith Johnson, a couple of our first guests on the show, they'll tell you, you know, have a Joshua Warren on, have a Jeff Belanger on, but make sure you also read Hans Holzer. Make sure you read Brad Steiger. Make sure you read Ed Warren. D. Scott Rogo. You know, things of that. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And then those who came before, you know, who, I mean, there's a marvelous field of research and body of literature beginning at the turn of the century. And, you know, <laughs> I, I, again, hear from so many people saying, you know, well, I've been doing this now for four years, I've been <laughs> <laughs> And I think I should have my own television show. I mean, I think I'm as good as what I see on TV. Well, they may be as good. I, I'm not terribly impressed by some of the TV programs that I see and the people, uh, you know, uh, proclaiming that they are experts and researchers. It, it, it's a, here again, it's double-edged. It's marvelous that so much of the public is becoming aware but it's it's to the it can be to the detriment. I I saw a newspaper clipping not long ago where a bunch of young ghostbusters were arrested for trespassing. You know, you don't just pick out what you think is a haunted house and go inside. You know, you you have to okay these things, even if it's an empty facility, an old hospital and an old institution of some sort which probably has all kinds of vibrations in it. It probably has all kinds of hauntings. But you have to check with the caretaker. You have to go with the proper documentation. You don't just invade places and try to find ghosts there. Due diligence. Your basic Due diligence. Yes. Well, I think, too, so much of it today is because of and we say it all the time, the popularity of uh, television programs like Ghost Hunters and even Unsolved Mysteries, so many of these shows that are out there and you know, radio shows that we can't mention here, but everybody knows what I'm talking about. Right. Uh, they're, they're so popular, and the paranormal is such in the forefront of people's minds right now that you have people that, A, either have a skill either in writing or radio or television, uh, and they have an interest in the subject. So, like you said, a crash course, read a couple of books, talk to a couple of people, and they're quote-unquote experts. Right. Uh, some people, it's not that easy for them. They don't choose to get into this field. Some people are kind of drawn into it. And it seems from reading a bit about your background, you were kind of uh, drawn into this because of your own experiences at a young age. Well, that's exactly right. And that's true with so many people, as you rightly have indicated. Uh, I 
saw things. I heard things. I didn't realize until you begin school and teachers tell you that, you know, there really aren't people standing in the corner and, and you're imagining things. You have a imagine a wild imagination. And then if if you're wise, you learn to moderate this. You learn to uh, apprehend that other people are not perceiving these things. So unless you want to be completely ostracized by society and by your small, I grew up in a very small community, and you know these things had to be had to be regulated. But again, uh, I just had a birthday on Monday. I just turned Ooh, seventy-one, and my my cousin, who at this point uh, lives in. Um, Arizona, but he said he wrote to me, and I thought you know this was this was so neat. He said, "Isn't it incredible that the ghost stories that we used to tell and that you used to perceive?" He said, "Now you have made your life, you have lived your life with the seeds that began." when we were just little farm boys on neighboring farms. And I thought that's so true, and it's so nice to have my cousin. Now, you know, the the rural areas are very much like the large cities where you have, you know, the um, Italians settling in one area, the Irish settling in another. Well, it's the same in the country, and certainly early in the century. And the only people... The only children that I knew until I went to the public school were my cousins. And consequently, because, you know, we all were in a line, farm after farm after farm, all belonged to one family, different members of the family. So every holiday, every work day was spent with your cousins. And consequently, they become your best friends through life. And... I was very fortunate in having such a supportive family. They knew I was a little different. They knew I was a little strange. But they accepted me. They never made me feel odd man out. And that, I think, was probably the greatest blessing that I could possibly have had. Well, there's so many people who have experiences that don't get that kind of supportive structure and instead are kind of ostracized from the family exactly and that that could very well have happened to me now in in the my grandmother was a town librarian and i began i mean this is back you know in the 40s i began asking her to send for books on psychical research and she ordered them for me because i was her favorite grandchild (laughs) But she gave me stern, stern lecture that I should not pursue this because it could lead to insanity. I should not pursue what was called the supernatural then, not the paranormal. And, of course, that was kind of the general feeling on the establishment among teachers and so forth. But again, in my family, I was very fortunate. My mother could have been a medium, if that would have been her want, because she did have 
visions. She did have visitations. My father was a very religious man and a kind of man typical of his time that you have to see it, taste it, touch it, or it doesn't exist. So in our home growing up, we had doors opening and closing. We had manifestations. We had objects moving around. Never once did my dad admit that he ever saw anything. But he never ridiculed us. He never ridiculed my sister, my mother, and myself for proclaiming what we had seen. Well, do you think there was more support uh, from the fatherly side? Do you think that was more that he did experience it, but he was just cut from that cloth where he was kind of trained to, to not admit that he had experienced it? Exactly. I mean, he could not not have seen things. <laughs> he could not not have heard things. Being pragmatic. Yes. But that was it. Now, that gave me a good balance, though. Well, that to write me... 162 books about the subject, yeah, I would say yeah. so. <laughs> but you see, that, that led me, my father's example led me always to question, always to be certain that there was no wind that made the door close. There was no wind that made the window go up and down. <laughs> that I would question first, and I've just got to tell you very, very quickly, when I had written a number of books and was known for and had a reputation for writing the strange and UFOs and so forth, I heard from a farmer that lived not far from my home, my old home as a child, my childhood home. And he said that UFO appeared so regularly that he could set his watch by him. So I asked my dad, do you want to come along? Now, I expected him to say, oh, no, no, but he said yes, he would. Now, it was so wonderful. We had an incredible sighting that night. My dad grabbed a pair of a policeman's binoculars, and I thought he was going to give himself black eyes. He was watching so closely. And you actually were able to convince him then that, you know, to admit to what he was seeing? He did not. I mean, he said then, on the way home, that's when he said, I've always believed, but I never wanted to. To, I wanted to give you balance. I wanted so that you would question. But he said, I, and I was so happy that I had invited him that night because we shared that. We shared what for him was a, you know, a life-altering experience. The UFO came. The UFO went. The UFO came again. We had police officers. We had uh, uh, judges. We had, uh, you know, an, an incredible array of credible witnesses that night observing. And it was such a remarkable evening. And for my dad to have experienced that with me and to have seen what had so excited and enthralled me and led me to walk the path that I did. You know, it was just an enormous gift. We already have our first call coming in for you, Brad, so let's go to the phones. Good evening, you're on Spooky South Coast. How are you doing? Well, hi. First time on uh, Spooky South Coast. Hey, welcome My aboard. I'm Bob. I'm with uh, Searching for Bigfoot ah. uh, Incorporated, and uh, I uh, talked to Matt uh, this morning, and he suggested I call in, and 
I'm just uh, intrigued to be able to get to listen to uh, Brad Stagger. Uh, we're similar age, and he is by far the most prolific writer of my age group, and uh, and we as a group are very proud of him. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, sir. Well, thank you. Thank you for calling uh, in, question Bob. That I, a question that I have for you is, uh, in my research, uh, which is uh, not mainstream uh, yet, uh, but it's getting that way pretty quickly, uh, we run into uh, very often we run into a problem where we'll come up with some type of finding that uh, people cannot dispute, and once it becomes known that that's available, they all of a sudden disappear. Their uh, findings are uh, they either disavow having done any of the research that they did, or uh, uh, come away saying this never happened. Uh, for instance, uh, we found a. Uh, we were in Texas, and we were brought down to investigate a sighting, or not a sighting, but a find of a skeleton of a creature that's over nine feet tall, uh, obviously very ancient. It was uh, uncovered by a university uh, archaeology group. And uh, when we started uh, hitting them up for questions, their supervisor told them this site, which we have pictures of on our web and, and all, this site, which is um, obviously there, uh, you're not to answer any more questions about it. You're not to share any more of the report findings we have. As a matter of fact, this site does not and has not ever existed. And we run into issues like that, and I know that uh, this is something you're very familiar with. And I just, oh, <laughs> too familiar. Yeah, I'd just like to hear more about your opinion about this. I mean, it's happened to us. Several times, another time we, we found, or we didn't find, the uh, Montana Police Department, Sheriff's Department, found in a landfill, found a hand um, that was skinned and the uh, last digits removed, and they could not identify it. They tried and tried and tried to identify it and couldn't come up with anything. Uh, we finally got our hands on it, and uh, we had DNA work done on it, and the DNA report came back verbally. Uh, this is no known primate. It's uh, not a known large animal like a bear or anything like that. And uh, we don't really know what it is. Well, we we printed that on our work on our website, and people started calling in from all across the country, pretending to be us to get more information about this. And of course, uh, at that point, they they quit dealing with us. Uh, or the technicians quit dealing with us, and we had to deal through their uh, PR uh, director, director of public relations, who said they ran another test and uh, said that there was no viable DNA, and that's their final report, and they don't want to talk to us anymore. Yeah. But we, but we do have on tape, uh, fortuitously, uh, one of one of the people that was involved with this, uh, uh, Don Monroe, uh, is kind of a, a real outdoorsman and lives out in the woods up in, in uh, Idaho uh, and uh, is not familiar with how to use a cell phone. And on one of the calls to this DNA house, he inadvertently recorded the call where they admitted saying, uh, yes, it's not any uh, known primate it's not, or it's not a hide. It's not any known primate. It's not a bear. It's not, you know, all these different things. but that is not the report they sent us. The report sent us, they sent us, said they did a test, which they didn't charge us for, 
uh, obviously for obvious reasons, and uh, that there was no viable DNA. So, I mean, this is not uncommon for us. Uh, Brad, you must have encountered a lot of that, just not not only in the cryptozoology field, but in everything that you've researched. Especially cryptozoology. <laughs> uh, I've been chased out of uh, laboratories <laughs> uh, w- with similar situations, bringing in uh, specimen, bringing in hair samples and so forth. Um, I know how you feel. I had my own house broken into and lots of my samples stolen, and then they tried to burn my house down afterwards. Well, see, oh, uh, there... We could really get paranoid if we talked about this subject. <laughs> I'm looking out the window right now as we're talking. So, well, the, what do you um, think the reason for this is? Uh, oh man, you know, um, well, I, I power. Well, the question, the question we have to ask is, who is they? Yeah, who is they? That is the ultimate question. And we all have our little theories, and we all have the experiences. Uh, I he mentioned uh, my friend mentioned the nine foot skeleton. All right, I, I began collecting accounts of these nine-foot skeletons, and they were kept in little private museums around the country. And I began writing articles for, you know, like good old Saga magazines, if you, you probably don't remember but those, that wonderful time. And, you know, one by one, these museums started burning down. And I really got the enmity, the hatred of people, you know, because they, they were saying... You know, we, we won't talk to you anymore. You know, that, you're like, uh, you, you know, the, the, the black angel. I mean, if, if we talk to you, bad things happen. I've lost more friends. I have lost more friends who will not speak to me, would not speak to me. Their wives made them break off all contact with me because of harassment, because of phone calls in the middle of the night, because of threats. Uh, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Now, if it's any consolation, the better known that I've become, the less that happens. But when I was, you know, we're going back to the uh, early 60s, and, you know, I I was like uh, Typhoid Mary. You know, people just uh, would avoid me. And then, I don't know, there must have been a couple people pretending to be me because I would arrive to investigate an area, and they would say, get out of here. We remember what you did last time. And I'd say, I'm sorry, I've never been here. We know what you did. You did this. You did that. And people, you know, saying, there he is, and practically running me out of town. I'd never been there before. And I had those kind of experiences happening. So, I mean, I don't want to sound paranoid, but, you know, since you brought up the subject. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's something I am just shocked by because... Uh, I look at things like, uh, oh my God, Albert Einstein uh, was a uh, pretty clever guy. <laughs> pretty clever. And, uh, he got they by. thought, of course, they treated him like he was uh, retarded. Right. Uh, literally. Right. Um, they told him, well, of course, there's no relationship between time and space. What's wrong with you? I wonder where we, as a civilization, would be if people were to believe that and just say, okay, there's no sense in looking anymore. You know, do you follow what I'm saying? I mean, Oh, I, is- I do follow what you're saying, and we have to keep looking. We, we, um, I mean, I, I, I got to the point where I realized I had a few allies. And, um, you know, we're, we're all 
acculturated. We're raised to seek approval. We're, we're raised to seek the uh, approval of both our friends and society. I learned early that I, I wasn't going to get that. I wasn't going to get that. Uh, I've been blessed. You know, it has slowly grown, but I mean, come on, 162 books and I'm 71 years old. And of course, there's still, uh, you know, every time an article or book of mine, uh, there will be attacks. There will be uh, people saying that the book should be burned. It should be pulled out of print. This is heresy. This is blasphemy. It doesn't end. I mean, uh, I'm sorry to tell you that, guys, but it doesn't end. There will always be, and you ask who they is, that's that's the good question. I mean, what are we going to say? The men in black? The New World Order? The Illuminati? I mean, the scientific establishment? Uh, you, you know, it, it... It changes from year to year, culture to culture, and century to centuries. The people that are in power that control, basically, your monetary systems. They are the ones that control what everybody believes. Look at it through history. Look at the history that Rome brought us. Yes. Okay. You you go up and go through the Middle Ages, uh, the spread of the church, what they did. And now you're getting into what we have, the modern uh, society today. Who controls the money is the ones that control the information. Well, I discovered the definition of power years ago. What you know is not what you know. And it's not who you know. It's what you know about who you know. That is true power. <laughs> exactly. Well put. But, yes, but, you know, I remain naive. I remain naive. To me, these things are so exciting. I want to share them. Why should these things upset people? Because it upsets the way that they're used to living. If people question what's been told now... Are they going to question what you know? The, it puts the people well, that are already there in jeopardy. Exactly. I mean, it, I mean, Bob, doing the research that you do, uh, how much would it really affect the world climate as we know it right now if you were to suddenly capture a Bigfoot and prove that he exists? It would just well, be well. First, first well, of all, we have definite plans to do that. Well, because, uh, uh, and and but I've got to tell you, uh, someone uh, I talked to a gentleman from Canada who is. Uh, uh, involved with this kind of study, and he keeps everything he does very secret. And has a, and he explained to me that his theory, and of course it's a theory, just uh, that if one of these animals were found with the, with the, the all the clamor to protect uh, the wilderness and whatnot, there would be a need to protect the uh, environment where these animals might have been found. Of course. This kind of makes sense. Mm -hmm. Of course. Now, there are, um, if we were to find an animal like this and they were going to close down, had to close down certain areas. There goes your logging industry. How would that affect uh, oil exploration? How would that affect mining? How would that affect uh, uh, timber industry? How would that affect, you know, all the industries that... But you're looking at it from you're looking at it from a pragmatic point of view, which I, I fully agree with and and understand. But even from a relationship to belief systems, uh, you know, if if we suddenly found out that there was indeed a Bigfoot, people would say, "Oh, gee, you know what? I understand because you know they've said for years there could be, and even though I didn't believe it, I can understand now that they've explained to me that this creature exists and how it survived." 
But the problem is, is the minute you believe Bigfoot now exists, that's going to start questioning other things, too. Well, what about UFOs? What about ghosts? What about all this other stuff that we're told from the time that we're two and three years old isn't real? And then they're going to start questioning and they're going to start digging into things that might matter a little bit more in the grand scheme of things than, you know, a long sought after hominid. Well, I remember a cold winter night long ago when Ivan T. Sanderson, I'm sure you know that name, yep. and Bernard Huebelman called me. They were from a payphone. You could hear the wind howling in the background, just like a scene from a movie. And Ivan said to me, my boy, I have found it. I have found what I have been searching for. We have found the body of Bigfoot. Well, you know the story. That was the famous Minnesota Iceman. And then it was exposed as being a rubber dummy. Then it was exposed as just having rotting meat, so it smelled like a corpse. But Ivan swore to his dying day that there had been a switch made, that that was not the body that he and Bernard had discovered that cold winter night in Minnesota. Because I think it mattered so you know, much that's, more. That's not even unusual in our in our industry. If uh, if you go back and look at some of the finds, uh, uh, like the Yeti finger, and the and the they couldn't have made up the stories about uh, uh, what people went through to uh, smuggle that finger out and move things around and change things the way they did. Uh, You're talking amazing. Tom Slick's expedition? Yes, yes, yes. Well, uh, you, amazing stuff. You, you as I, you know, you've talked to so many people who have had encounters, and they want nothing for themselves. They want, they're not exploiting the discovery at all. They tell you sometimes with embarrassment sometimes with great enthusiasm and excitement. Sometimes they let you use the name, sometimes they don't. But you know these are ordinary people who have had extraordinary experiences. And they come in all the time. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. Bob, we thank uh, you for joining us. We're we're up against a break here, so we have to take a quick break. But uh, we thank you for checking in. Thanks for calling all right. Didn't mean, well, it was didn't a mean pleasure to cut you to off. Talk to you, and I appreciate sharing your input. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Good we, night. Yeah, we do have to pay some bills, Brad. So we will take a I quick know. break. I know. I know. It's just we get so wrapped up in the conversation that if it wasn't for Matt Costa over here slapping me in the arm saying "break, break," is he the one that keeps saying "pragmatic, pragmatic"? No, that'd that, be me. Oh, that'd be you. Okay. Yeah, for all the communication that you've had with uh, our producer Matt Costa in recent months, uh, as he helped get you onto our show. He's actually the one that will probably say nothing during the course of the program. Okay. All he's, right. He's a busy man over there behind the board. So. Okay. All right, so we will take a quick break. Do, on the... Due diligence again, right? <laughs> yeah. If, uh, if you would like to call in and, and share uh, some paranormal experiences with Brad, or if you'd like to hear some more of his stuff, we're going to talk about a whole slew of different uh, aspects of the paranormal, but you can join in 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500, We'll be right back here on Spooky South Coast. Hello. Hey, man. You up? No. Wake up. I need to talk to you. I think your house is haunted. 
Hey, come on, it's 2.30 in the morning. I can't sleep in here, man. I'm scared. the spooky south coast tim weisberg here silent assassin matt costa slicing and dicing once again good work matt thank you and uh, science advisor matt moniz here in the studio believe it or not yeah i'm actually not out on an investigation tonight we'll have to have you sign an autograph before you go because you'll probably just become big star and forget all about us so if you would like to join in the conversation tonight with our special guest brad steiger 508-996-0500 508-291-0500. We're talking all aspects of the paranormal. And we just talked a bit about uh, cryptozoology and Bigfoot, Brad. But, I mean, I remember reading an article that you wrote in Fate recently talking about different aspects of cryptozoology. It's it's really starting to become almost a legitimate field. <laughs> almost a legitimate field. Well, I, I'm sure my friend Lauren Coleman would be glad to hear you say that. Well, no, when I say legitimate, I don't mean in our eyes. Absolutely, we all believe it's a legitimate field. But to mainstream science, oh, who I, is I, I swept under meant. the rug. Yeah, I knew what you meant. Uh, boy, I hope so, but I I don't know. I, it seems as though um, there's they again, that almost yeah. impenetrable wall, which is going the only time it's going to crack, and I think, Matt said it earlier, or maybe our, our caller said it. It's. I'm sorry. It's going to have to be captured, and I hope captured, not killed. It's going to have to be an actual specimen, not a footprint, not a body print, not hair, because we've done all that. We've done all that for years. It hasn't been enough. And it hasn't been enough. It's going to have to be the actual critter, and I hope that you know it's not with a thirty odd six slug in it. How about a part of a critter? Well, if it were to be found, yes. Well, that's what uh, this guy is about. Uh, They have, uh, as he said, remains of a hand and a couple of parts, and they're sending them up to me to do DNA testing on. Well, I hope they come back. I I hope they're acknowledged. I mean, uh, here we go with the paranoia. I have my own laboratory. A lot of people who have sent specimens and the laboratory never received them. Um, I happen to be the laboratory. (laughs) I have a quarter million dollars worth of my own instrumentation. Well, that's wonderful. Which he stole. So, well, I didn't steal. (laughs) The laboratories I work for was just throwing it out. I I acquired it. I have my own DNA sequencer. (laughs) Just don't give your address out over the air, okay? No, no. I was just going to say, I think you've said enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've already had my house broken into and samples stolen and stuff like well, that. Then, then Threatened I, at gunpoint. Yeah, you know, I, well, I've run just, into they on a. That occasion. was just me trying to make sure I got you back in the studio for the show. Yeah. Well, um, <laughs> I wish you much success, and I shall eagerly await the outcome. Now, and as you said, it would take the, the capture of a creature to get uh, people to believe it. What about hauntings? What would it take to convince more people that this is legitimate. Would it take, just as we always say, they have to experience for themselves before they can believe it? I think so. I think so. I <laughs> Today, I just got an email a couple of days ago, which is the kind you get, I'm sure, and, and you laugh at. 
it said, well, if you really have seen ghosts, then I want to see, I want to see a video you've taken. I want to hear it. I want to see it. I want to see objects floating around. And I thought, oh, would that convince you, man? Because I could whip up something on the on the video. I could whip up something on the computer. You can do that now. Well, Matt Moniz actually captured a legitimate video of a spirit uh, at Waverly Hills in Kentucky, and even that hasn't been enough to convince people. Oh, no. I mean, I've, I've got the most uh, in, in real ghosts. You know, there's some astonishing photographs in mm-hmm. there, real ghosts. Restless Spirits in Haunted Places, which Sitting I know. right beside us. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And, uh, of course, I, I'm sent pictures all the time. Some are good. Some I, I've got one, which they're still checking out, which is just extraordinary. Um, okay. I think you have to experience it. This is like, forgive me now, this is kind of like the individual mystical experience. This is kind of like an illumination experience. Or maybe it's like falling in love. People could tell you about it, but until it happens to you. And again, I am the cockeyed optimist. I keep writing and try to convince people, but a lot of people will take it on the explanation, the exposition, the narrative. Other people will say, well, I have to see for myself. I have had, and you probably have too, I've had total and complete skeptics with me. See, skeptics when, are actually true believers. Yeah, who, who, when the entity appears or when the manifestations appear, don't know how to deal with it. Their, their worldview has completely mm-hmm. caved in on them. Absolutely, yeah. You know, and we get all the time uh, here, we broadcast out of New Bedford, Massachusetts, which is... Uh, known for being a very uh, pragmatic, you know, people here are real blue collar, you know, we have to see it to believe it kind of people. And, right, God bless them. And, and people ask me all the time, how can you go on the air and talk about ghosts as if they exist? How can you go on the air and talk about, you know, things that you have no proof or, you know, you can't convince people with proof? And I just tell them, listen, if from 10 to midnight on Saturday nights they aired you know, a gospel show, if they aired a, a religious show, thousands of people would take that for what it is and believe on faith. And, and so we're asking people to do that as well. And that is a very valid, for some people, outrageous analogy you have just made. Oh, absolutely. I'm but trying to phone to light up. No, but it is absolutely valid. How is it? I was just going to say, how is it in any different? It, no, it is not. But I say for many people who have heard you say that, it will be offensive and outrageous. But there is no difference. We are asked to believe in invisible God. We are asked to believe in an invisible supreme being. Where Many of us then have, have seen benevolent beings. Many of us have seen spirits. Some haven't. But across the nation, on certain days and certain nights, people are sitting there praying and we're not denigrating that at all. I know you're not denigrating No, not that. at all. It, you really made a very respectful analogy that many people will not be able to accept, but it is valid. Well, we have a phone call coming in now, but it was actually, they called in before I said that, so hopefully <laughs> we're not going to get killed here. Okay. Good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast. How are you doing? Good. How are you? All right. Good. Um, 
is, um, suppose, all right, tomorrow they did find a Bigfoot, okay, dead, right down the road from you guys, you know, that wooded area where people, there's the walking trail. Mm-hmm. Imagine the mess that'd be. Well, you mean in terms of in that area? People stopping all, I mean, I, I, I don't, sometimes, you know, I don't believe in the government controlling everything, but I believe, um, they should sometimes save people from themselves because that would be a big mess. I mean, how, how do you? What are you using mess? What do you mean by mess? You have everybody and every anybody going down there, so they could get their own. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I think people would be getting shot because they'd be shooting anything that moved. I mean, sometimes people, you know, they go a little crazy too. Right. You know what I'm saying? I I don't like the idea of cover-ups and all that. No, I don't care for that, but I just picture sometimes if they, you know, hey, you know, everybody wants mystery solved. I mean, and uh, you think about that. Well, yeah, I like that mystery solved, too, I mean, but in a way, do you really want it solved? Now, that's a very interesting question. That is a very interesting question. You're saying, essentially, that people need mysteries and that even if Bigfoot were discovered, someone would probably erase the whole finder and the corpse to sustain the mystery. Is that what you're saying? In a sense, but in another sense, too, that I think everybody would... Be know, disappointed? Because, not disappointed. Well, there'll be a disappointment, but there'll also be the ones that well, they want theirs. They want, you know, since it's old, they, since they're there, I'm going to try to get one, too. It'd be like uh, the gold rush of 1849. Right. They, they, I mean, that area, could you picture what that looked like? I mean, really, seriously, that they be down there, the hunters, uh, first-time hunters, people shooting at each other because anything that moved, I mean, I think it would just... Well, you, you've brought up a very provocative point of view, What's and uh, we we like not to think that it is, <laughs> but but you, you, you probably, uh, you know, I there's a great deal of truth in what you say, perhaps. I, I that, uh, and, pe- uh, people... You're suggesting then that people would go out en masse, so to speak, and try to get their own specimen. Right. It's the same thing with uh, um, UFOs, which I do believe in. I mean, I, I, I saw one many years ago, but I had called the show some time ago. Uh, people were firing at things in the air, and they were seeing spacemen, and you know what I mean? I well, yeah, it does lead to hysteria. I mean, that goes without saying because... Which is unfortunate. Yeah, you're opening that door of saying, you know, here's something strange and unusual that you previously didn't believe in, mm-hmm. and then that just makes everything, you know, stand out. Well, you know, if, for example, if, you know, the government came out tomorrow and said, yes, there was a conspiracy uh, spearheaded by the United States government to assassinate John F. Kennedy, mm-hmm. well, then all of a sudden, anybody in power that ever died would oh. be the target of a government conspiracy. Oh, jeez, well, that would really be something one of the... God, because people sometimes, like I say, they, they need uh, to be saved from themselves because I, I just, you know, I mean, like I said, I, in a sense, would want the mystery of that uh, solved, but in a, in a way, too, I wouldn't want it solved. Well, because, I don't think Brad necessarily agrees. You are talking to well, the author of Conspiracies and Secret Societies. I just think they should be left alone. You know, you, you've brought up a, a very uh, provocative philosophical question, and, and uh, it's one that uh, is very interesting. Those of us, of course, who you know are are devoted from our aspect of trying to reveal these things, uh, we'll keep right on revealing. But I'm I'm sure there's a great deal of truth in what you say. Some mm-hmm. people would 
would rather not know. Some people would rather uh, keep the secret. Uh, you're probably there's probably a great deal of truth in what you say. Because I don't know if I if I tomorrow if I saw one if I if I saw the corpse of one in the woods. I don't know what I don't think I'd uh, say anything. <laughs> okay. I really don't think I'd say anything because first of all, it's going to be labeled as a nut. You know that. But, but what if you brought? What if you dragged the body into a, a laboratory? And what if there was only two more left? But if yeah. it's already dead. No, but what if there was two surviving ones that lived in that area of the woods, and the people started overrunning them? Yeah, you, you could lead to the extinction of that creature. Yeah. Well, one would like to think. How would I feel then? That people would respect that, but no, uh, people, I don't know. The way the world is today, I don't think so. Well, you you bring up a, a very interesting point. And I did go see that one that was supposedly, uh, there was up the North Dartmouth Mall. They had it encased in ice. Yes. I did go see that. Did you believe it was real? Yes, I did. Okay. At the time, yeah, I did. I mean, me and a lot of others, because there were big lines to see that thing. Yeah. Do you still believe it? I don't know. I mean... I, I remember I called the show. They said that uh, that had been exposed as a fake was rubber, uh, mm -hmm. was rotting meat because it did. I tell you, it did smell, but right, it was right. just uh, I, you know it's one of the unfortunate things that if it was a fake, it's too bad. And... Well, you bring up an interesting point about human nature mm -hmm. that uh, you know we wish we could dispel and dispute, but you know as I say, there's a great deal of truth in what you say. Mm -hmm. right, we thank you for checking in. We're coming up on the news break, so okay. we're gonna have to let you go, but. Thank you for, for joining in and bringing up, you know, the other side. We talk all the time about wanting to expose the truth, and sometimes we are so adamant in our beliefs that we fail to see the other side. So I, I always appreciate when the callers can offer that balance to us. Well, no problem. I enjoy the show very much, and thank you for letting me talk. All right, thanks. And we'll be back in the second hour with even more with author Brad Steiger, and we're going to talk about all kinds of stuff. Uh, now, Brad, uh, real quick, we got about 20 seconds. Uh, why don't we tell everybody they can go to your website? Oh, thank you. Yes, and it's very easy. Just bradandsherry.com. B-R-A-D, spell out and, A-N-D, and Sherry is S-H-E-R-R-Y. Bradandsherry.com. And we have a link on SpookySouthCoast.com. We'll be right back after the news, the return of the week and weird, and then more with Brad Steiger. Hot homemade knitted items? How about Knitbits? At knitbits.etsy.com. A new baby in your life? Need a homemade knitted item for a shower gift? The Knitbits has you covered. Sweaters, bibs, booties, blankets, they've got it all. Want to be up on the latest trends? How about some of those funky, cozy socks everybody's wearing? Or knitted handbags and cell phone holders? If they don't have it at Knitbits, or if you want it in a different color, email them. They'll take care of you. That's knitbits.etsy.com. K-N-I-T-B-I-T-S dot E-T-S-Y dot com. Knitbits, for all your homemade needs. I know who you are. Spooky South Coast. That's a good show, man. You know what? I got a theory about your show. You guys got no idea what's going on. Well, excuse me for having enormous flaws that I don't work on. Spooky South Coast is back. The key to the whole thing is to think as a child. And for me, that comes very easy. 
Back hour number two of Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here. Silent Assassin Matt Costa, Science Advisor Matt Moniz, along for the ride as well. We'll get right back into the conversation with author Brad Steiger in just a little bit. But first, we're going to have the return of the week in weird in just a few minutes. But Matt Moniz, uh, just real quickly, why don't we talk to you for a minute? Because you haven't been here, and we joked about it, but you were with uh, Weezy, Brian Weezy Harnwa and Ron Millione last week at Eastern States. If you can just give the listeners an update to anything that might have happened after we talked to you last Saturday. We had a, uh, a bunch of stuff happen. Uh, we had uh, Sid Haig with us. That was on Saturday night. Uh, he played in House of a Thousand Corpses. and uh, Also, Kane Hodder was there. I actually became pretty good friends with him. Kane Hodder, uh, basically Jason from Friday the 13th. And he's a big guy to help you out very, with anything attacks you. Very so. big guy. Uh, really, really nice guy. But um, on... Friday night, I had uh, led a group of about 14 people, most of them all from uh, paranormal groups in the Philadelphia area, uh, Batty About Ghosts, and uh, that's one of the groups that was there. R- a lot of really nice people. We went down cell block one. There were four other groups that that were there. Brian led one. Uh, Don led one from California. Uh, Weezy led one, and uh, Keith Age, uh, actually, from uh, Louisville Ghost, Ghost Hunters. Yeah, he he led some. There's over 12 different uh, cell block rows you can go down, and uh, so we had no problems, you know, each having our own area to go research. Well, the first one I went down was cell block row one. Uh, we got to the end of it, and we could hear something whispering and hissing at us, and I chased it outside into one of the guard towers, and uh, one of the groups followed me out, and this thing came back out surrounded us went around us hissing and shouting and what have you brought the group back in and i decided well okay i'm going to challenge this thing so i'm challenging it and uh, the group was recording all of this and uh, they got an evp on i believe a couple of different recorders i'm challenging this what spirit or what have you and on the recorders it says my name back and says i'm going to get you so that, I found that a little unnerving after the fact. A uh, whole bunch of other stuff happening. We got some stuff on thermal footage and lots of a ton of EVPs. Uh, some uh, good still shots. And anybody that was on that investigation and has this evidence, if you'd like to share it, please uh, contact us, Spooky Crew at SpookySouthCoast.com, or even better, you can go right to SpookySouthCoast.com, click on the message board, and then you can. Uh, submit your evidence that way as well. Post links up to pictures. Uh, post your audio there as well. Uh, we'd love to hear it. We'd love to see it and uh, share it with everybody else. And you know, maybe we can even devote 
uh, a future episode to Eastern States because there's so much activity that goes on there. It's it's one of those major cases that I think we need to hit. Mm. So, uh, but for now, it's time to. Bring back something that you haven't heard in a couple of weeks here on Spooky South Coast because we've been so busy with uh, some some terrific shows and tonight no exception. But we're going to sneak out about five minutes here to bring back you know what you love it the week in weird. And of course, exorcisms in the news this week. Uh, you might have heard this story. Uh, the f- we have one story here that's been a little bit mainstream. I've, I've heard it picked up by some regular news outlets. Uh, but then there's something else here that I found very interesting that I hadn't heard yet prior to today. The first story comes from UPI. Uh, in Bucharest, Romania, a Romanian priest and four nuns have been convicted of killing a novice who was strapped to a crucifix for five days in an exorcism. Uh, Petro Corogianu, who was excommunicated by the Romanian Orthodox Church after the 2005 death of Iriana Cornici, received a 15-year sentence. The four nuns who guarded Cornici during her ordeal received shorter sentences. The exorcism took place at the Tanaku Monastery near Vaslui in eastern Romania, where Cornici was a novice. Koroganu said the nuns said that Cornici asked for help and said she was possessed by Satan. After her death, reports said she was mentally ill. It's really convenient to get that report after the death. Cornici was given no food or water during the exorcism. Uh, Her death was attributed to dehydration and suffocation. So... Uh, again, you know, this this happens from time to time where you hear cases of exorcisms where the person doesn't make it through. Emily Rose. Exactly. And so it, it's it's really the lines are blurred as to who to blame. But then again, it's if churches would recognize it more, then it might be covered, you know, under church doctrine and therefore not subject to being, quote unquote, murder. But again, you know, it, it happened again from Sabah.com. Uh, rescued from beating, a girl killed at exorcism session. Uh, and this is from a website. It's, it's english.sabah.com, S-A-B-A-H.com, if you want to check it out. I couldn't really do a lot of back-searching to find out where it comes from. But after the scandal of violence at the psychiatry in Adana, again, the English is bad in this, by the way, because they, they have bad translation. I'll, I'll try and go over the best I can. A young girl was taken out of the hospital and died at an exorcism session by the exorcist called by her parents. Uh, apparently, footage of the violence taking place in the Adana Psychiatric Hospital uh, appeared on the media. Her family abducted Emrakea, age 24, saying that she was beaten. So they took her home to their home in Antakea. I'm sorry about butchering this. And called exorcist Abdullah Yasalepti uh, to the home to treat her. The girl died during the exorcism session. The exorcist claimed to stomp on her while they were alone in a room. He was arrested. The reason for her death will be clarified after the forensic examination. So another case where something's going on during this exorcism and through the physical process of trying to remove the spirit, you know, the the unthinkable happens and the person passes away. So two stories uh, right now with the Catholic Church once again bringing exorcism back into what they're teaching, offering courses actually for exorcists. You know, these are stories that we need to keep an eye on uh, and keep a watch on as, as this goes on. Just a note, neither of these are Catholic exorcisms. No. Catholic Church generally uses the Roman rites. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's not as um, it's it, it's not as heinous as some of these other treatments that they use in other religions. But, I mean, it's, it is going to be part of the argument that people are going to put forth of why exorcism should be banned, not practiced. 
they're going to say, you know, here's a mentally ill person that was beaten to death or, or starved to death or dehydrated because of somebody's religious belief. So just throwing that out there because we haven't aggravated religious groups enough tonight. Matt Costa, what do you have for us? All right, a Hollywood Matt Costa, imp- I mean, a Hollywood Wookiee impersonator is accused <laughs> of headbutting a tour guide. LAPD officers arrested Star Wars street performer Frederick Evan Young, age 44, of Los Angeles at Grauman's Chinese Theater. The charge of misdemeanor battery was alleged, allegedly headbutting a tour guide who complained about Young's treatment of two visitors from Japan. The incident witnessed by Superman and other impersonators is the latest clash outside the landmark cinema between visitors and performers dressed as movie and cartoon characters. Performers collect tips from tourists who pose, who pose for pictures and watch them perform in front of the theater. Tourists have complained about some costume characters who turn abusive when they refuse to pay them for, to pose for pictures. Under city rules, street performers can't state a price or demand money to take photos with them. They can only ask for a donation. They, they also can't touch or follow the tourists if they walk away. Tour guide Brian Sapir said that he was asked he asked the performer not to touch the visitors. Young became angry. You could see his eyes when he exploded beneath his mask. Sapir said Friday. And this is my favorite part. After that, he yelled, he yelled at Sapir. No one tells a Wookiee what to do. <laughs> threw off his mask and headbutted the tour guide in the face. A spokesman for, a spokesman for Lucasfilm said the performer has no affil- affiliation with the company and is dis- disappointed with anyone dressed as Chewbacca. Because they would be, sue them. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, who would behave in this way? The man is later is released on twenty thousand dollar bail and is expected in court later this month. Well, yeah, a Wookiee would just rip your arms out of your socket, yeah. wouldn't he? That's true. Actually, Chewbacca issued a statement. Uh, we have audio of that statement. Uh, here's Chewbacca commenting on on what uh, happened there. <laughs> All right. Can you get a more reliable witness than Superman? By the way, you can't. I don't think so. So the, we'll keep an eye on that case. Uh, Matt Chewbacca. I mean, Matt Moniz, what do you uh, have for us? <laughs> Set hair referencing again. I got something from um, Holtham City. Uh, last year, many people responded to reports of strange light orbs appearing at Holtham City Riverwalk Fellowship Church. One year later, more evidence has come to light. This time with international implications. Uh, The church is run by senior pastor Steve Solomon. The orbs appeared while while people worshipped inside the church. Almost everyone would just take a picture and then these orbs would show up, Solomon said. In the interest of fair and balanced science, a CBS uh, news affiliate and photographer took new photos inside the church just this past year. A large blue orb appeared in the photos. The photo was taken to physics professor Dr. Raniel Scalesi, as close as I can come with this spelling, at uh, Southern Methodist University. Dr. Scalise, or Scalesi, depending on how you pronounce it, teaches a class on uh, recognized pseudoscience. Isn't that a contradiction in terms? (laughs) Okay, uh, after careful analysis, Dr. Scalise 
said, it appears that the smaller of the two is a reflection of the larger one inside the camera elements. In other words, the smaller orb could be seen around the bright blue one due to a reflection. Okay, background lighting and flash in a digital camera and particles of dust in the air all play a role in tricking the eye, he said. It was pretty easily explained by science. Um, this may have explained the photo, but what about the video taken in the church? The video had been taken by a teenage boy, and in it, it shows an orb of light that appears to travel from a woman's feet through her body and out of her head. Many of the photography, many of the photography and paranormal experts who viewed the video also found it interesting. Last year, evidence was taken to the Office of Paranormal Investigations in Berkeley, California. The paranormal psychologist Lloyd Arabach said it appeared to be energy fields from a person or person's energy between the people. If it is a healing situation, it may affect the film. In other words, the orb represented a psychokinetic energy. Pastor Solomon uh, proposed another challenge for science to explain it. Since uh, 2003, Kenya has been suffering from a, a, a very bad drought, and in January 2006, Solomon went to Kenya prophesizing rain. In a video taken from the strip, the drought had ended. And that was that was pretty much the the basis of the case was right. It, it was after they had these orbs happening last year, and everybody was like, "Hey, it's dust. There's something going on here," and people discredited. He went to to Kenya, where they'd have this drought, and said, "I can relieve you of this drought," and right. supposedly it happened. If you go to CBS11TV.com, you can see the video, and then it'll make a little bit more sense. I just threw the story at you without you really seeing what was going on, so. You know, we, we talk all the time about orbs and how, you know, there's so many different causes for orbs. Lots of good orb pictures, actual true orbs taken in um, in Eastern State. Well, and that's what we see in the, in the pictures and video from this church. There's a lot of very interesting orbs that can't be easily dismissed. So, hey, maybe there is something going on. Who are we to say? We're not there. You want to go down? Next weekend? You going to do anything next weekend? Go down to Texas, check out this church? You're all over the world now, man. Uh, next thing I might be hitting is Waverly again. Okay. All right, we'll have to put the Riverwalk Church on hold then. Well, we'll be right back with more with author Brad Steiger here on Spooky South Coast. And if you have anything you'd like to offer for the week and weird, just go to the SpookySouthCoast.com website, click on the message board, and go to the Week and Weird thread, and you can add it in there. And if we read it on the air, we'll give you full credit. Or not. We'll be right back. You're a coward. You've got nothing to be afraid of. Step aside, I'll show you. Turn on all your lights, lock the doors, and pull down the shades. Spooky South Coast is back. Oh, my! Oh, woe is me! All right, welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, silent assassin Matt Costa, science advisor Matt Moniz along as well. And uh, we have author Brad Steiger. We talked to him in the first hour about... 
cryptozoology for a good portion of the hour, and we will be talking about that in a future edition uh, in our support of the Wheezy Ron trips. Uh, we'll try to get Dr. Ron Millione and Bigfoot hunter Tom Biscardi on uh, before their trip. March 30th, is it, they're going to Texas? Yeah, it's the end of March. And so we'll try to get them on. Now, uh, just a programming note. For the next couple of weeks, I think we're on the air next week, and then for a couple of weeks, the March Madness Tournament will be on. Uh, so what we're going to do is we're still going to provide a show for everybody out there. If you go to SpookySouthCoast.com, we'll have more information about that uh, as it comes along. But I think you're going to be able to listen via computer and join in the conversation that way as well, and we'll still have our regular podcasts available. And if, if you missed a portion of the show and you'd like to download it and listen to it, SpookySouthCoast.com, we have a stream there. You can get it on iTunes and pretty much anywhere where you get uh, your paranormal podcasts. Also, if you join our MySpace, uh, myspace.com slash SpookySouthCoast, we send out a bulletin every Sunday with the show embedded in it so you can listen to it right there as well. So all those different ways to get a hold of it. And now, hopefully, Brad, Brad's still with us. Uh, still there, Brad? I'm still here. Okay, we have to do that little bit of uh, shameless self-promotion every week. Yeah, of course take, we do. Take advantage of it while we can. Well, you, you can't tell a Wookiee what to do, though. So. <laughs> now, Matt, you had a question for, for Brad. And, and I love recognized pseudosciences. <laughs> yeah. That was a good term. <laughs> I, we didn't write it. I swear we didn't write it. That's Is a that non sequitur. the name of the course? Well, that, that's what it had said in, in what I was reading. I, uh, I noticed you kind of stumbled over it. <laughs> it, it definitely threw him off. It, it, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a, a non sequitur, isn't it? It says yes, he teaches a course yes. in recognizing pseudoscience. You know? Yes, yes. How can I'm, you recognize? <laughs> I'm glad that someone finally does. Yeah. But, but I wouldn't call it pseudoscience. Anyway, okay, I'm sorry. I, I just broke up when I heard <laughs> Matt read that. Uh, that's, that. Once I read it, it stumped me for the rest of what I was trying to read. And <laughs> yeah. it was like, I just kept going back to that. Now, I have a question for you. Mm -hmm. You wrote a foreword. To a book that I I loved that I I'm actually starting to dig up some of the stuff called Forbidden Archaeology. Is that a pun? No. I don't think I wrote a forward to it. Or an acknowledgement in it. Uh, I'm quoted several times in it. Okay, that's what it is. Uh, but yes, my book, which that book quotes, "Worlds Before Our Own." Right is going to be republished in just a matter of weeks. Oh, excellent. Uh, the book will be out. Anomalous Press is bringing it out. It was first published in 1978. And when it first came out, that was the book, I was astonished. Reviewers actually said this book should be burned. This book should not be allowed to be printed. They said that I insulted both the religious and scientific establishment. I wasn't trying to insult anyone. I was just writing a book. That's why I loved it. <laughs> and uh, it's, of course, it's, it's been kind of smothered since and hasn't been available. And now Anomalous Press is going to bring it out. It got a gorgeous cover. We just picked it uh, last week. And it will be out in just a matter of weeks. Now, what was it that made it so controversial? Give everybody kind of a brief... Uh... I, I theorized, theorized and presented ostensible evidence for a worldwide prehistoric civilization. And at Wait, the time, um, 
you know, uh, that wasn't acceptable. Um, if, if I may, I'm going to read, may I, what the back cover says? Absolutely. 22 years before technology of the gods, 17 years before fingerprints of the gods, 15 years before forbidden archaeology, there was worlds before our own. Brad Steiger's groundbreaking argument for the existence of a global prehistoric civilization. And then uh, the blurb tells a little bit about how <laughs> how the scathing review and, and how I was attacked. And then it said, eventually critics began to hail the book as, quote, mostly brilliant, quote, and, quote, daring, unquote. In the last couple of decades, the concepts first presented in Worlds Before Our Own have garnered tremendous critical and popular support. This is the book that started it all. And that will be re-released in just a matter of weeks. Uh, can you already pre-order it on uh, sites like Amazon.com? Uh, not quite yet, okay. but very, very soon. And check our website. We'll, of course, have information up or check uh, the anomalous. Uh, it, it should be just a matter of a very few weeks because we've just done the final approval, final approval cover, back copy, and so forth. But I'm extremely excited. And then another book of mine. I'm kind of having a rebirth this year, guys. Uh, Atlantis Rising, 1973, which um, many people say that was the book that started it all in 1973. That's going to be re-released just any day now. So, um, so it, Steve, it's been kind of exciting. You know, you can't really, I can't really tell you the, the, the wonderful feeling, you know, to write something, well, Strange Guest that I wrote in 1966 came out again last year 2006 i mean you know that many is 40 years and the books are being reprinted for a whole new generation that ju that just well uh, you know it, it's a proud feeling it's a humble feeling you know you just can't describe what it's like seeing you know those books that i wrote 40 some years ago being reborn for a new generation but we also give props to the publishers too for for re-releasing these books because there are so many books that, as you say, are cornerstones of what we talk about today that you just can't find anymore. And when you find a copy on eBay, you know, it's it's hundreds of dollars. Oh, and it's, yeah. it's out of the realm of most modern researchers. I, I, I Every once in a while I see one of my books, you know, like for, and I just can't, you know, that book sold originally for 40 cents and now it's, <laughs> now it's a hundred and some dollars, you well, know. But, but uh, hang on, everybody, because... Uh, a lot, well, you know, again, these books are being reprinted by individuals who read them when they were 11, 12, 15 years old, and now they're in a position to republish the books of mine that got them so excited and inspired them when they were kids. What would it take to get a complete copy of your, uh, all of your books? I was going to say, do you even have a complete uh, library, Brad? I'm afraid I don't. Um, you know, uh, one learns, I'm sorry to say, you know, that you don't lend books, you know, anymore. <laughs> you know, if someone came to me, I'd say, look, you know, I'll buy you a book, but I won't lend you my own copy. And, and uh, I, have, I have most of them. I had most of them. 
but they have, there are some that have disappeared. But I did, and I think I sent it to you, uh, on my 71st birthday, I sat down, because people keep asking, how many books have you written? How many books? And I sat down. Didn't I send you the list? Well, we have the list right in front of us. Yeah. Okay, 162 yes. is, is the title as of now. And that doesn't count, you know, Worlds Before Our Own, that because it's coming out. That was That's only... Counts as one book, even though it's coming out again. <laughs> it's it's funny because we were just talking about this during the break. We were looking over the list, and, and Matt Moniz was just shaking his head, saying 162 books. And I said, "You'll notice, out of this list, I del you know, as I was printing them out to save space on the paper, I I would delete, you know, like where you had it printed in multiple languages. Right, but right. most of them were printed in multiple languages. And I said to him, "Notice every single one of them is a unique title. It's not a reissue of a previous title." No, no, that wouldn't be. That wouldn't be fair. Mm -hmm. uh, now, I've just heard from a French publisher who might bring them all out again. You know, so that would be exciting. Excellent. That would be. Uh, and we'll, uh, let's just try to make a plan now while we have you on the phone. We've got to bring you back when, uh, when Worlds, of our own is, Worlds Before Our Own is uh, released. Because well, you will, of course, receive a review copy. Oh, thank you for that. And uh, I would be delighted. I mean, uh, I don't think people will will want to burn me at the stake in in 2007. No, no, the, definitely. The way they did in 1970. No, I. If you're familiar with another book of mine that's never been out of print, never been out of print, Mysteries of Time and Space. Mm -hmm. I had suggested this possible prehistoric civilization worldwide, but. When it came out in a single book, and again, I, I'm simply theorizing, I'm hypothesizing. I have felt, and this is something I, I don't think I've ever said on air, but when I was 17, 16, whatever, it was a beautiful summer's day, and a warm wind struck me in the face as I was just sitting on the front porch, and I suddenly had this incredible conviction, illumination, that we are not the first, that worlds, and I quote in the book, worlds upon worlds there were before Adam was. Now that's from rabbinical literature. literature. So it is a rabbinical tradition that there were worlds here on Earth before Adam. We are the Adamic world. But the world before, and I'm suggesting that there were hominids, you have to say. I can't say homo sapiens, mm -hmm. but hominids that had, and I present the evidence, simply theorizing. I'm not, you know, I'm not dogmatic, but I'm just laying it all out with all this marvelous evidence that I collected and the marvelous, courageous people who gave me their photographs of just remarkable artifacts that are found in 250 million-year-old strata. Like the little bell from Dorchester, Massachusetts, that was excavated in 1865? That's a nice big picture. And would you believe that that fellow... I mean, it, it used to be there in, in the university. 
I've and, been, and they I've gave been them, looking for it. We're, we're here in Massachusetts, so that's one of the things I've been looking for. Well, I doubt if the fellow is alive now, but one of the, if I remember right, one of the custodians, they just let him take it home. And when I found out about it and wrote to him, he generously sent it to me to have it photographed. I, a marvelous, incredible coin overturned by a farmer in his field in Texas. I, I can't believe, you know, people I asked if I could have a photograph of it. They sent me the coin so I could photograph it myself. Now, again, the trust. Of course, I returned these objects, but I mean the trust in people that just say, sure, because I guess no one else paid attention to them. Mm -hmm. But I had this information, and... And I was so excited and so thrilled when, when the book, and, and I could not believe the scathing reviews. I mean, in 1978, someone calls for a book to be burned, to be removed and burned. This was a review, and then it started to change. That means, well, it, only, me? it only means you wrote it right. Yeah, you're doing your job. If they're well, calling to have your book burned, you wrote it right. Well, then... Then I remember one newspaper had a full-page review. It said, Steiger takes on both the scientific religious establishment and, and really was a positive review. But again, I wasn't trying to take on anybody. I was just presenting a theory that I thought people would at least say, hmm, that's interesting, but, you know, not tear it off the shelves and burn it. Well, it like you said, hopefully it'll be uh, much more uh, easily received in 2007 without well, without that kind of. Uh, I can't. If you haven't read the book, I I can't wait till you guys see it. I've read it. That's because you're older than us, though. <laughs> I was born in 1970. <laughs> Every once in a while, I just have to remind Matt Moniz how old he is. No, no disrespect to you at all, Brad. But no, no. Well, I, listen. I mean, this is. This is, uh, I, I get such a kick out of it, because like I say, you know, the, these books are being published by men and women who got excited about them when they were teenagers, mm -hmm. you know, and, and uh, it just seems there's a certain kind of rightness, I think, when that kind of circle comes around. You read a book when you're 13, and then when you're uh, mature and you have a position with a publishing house, you say, by golly, I'm going to check with Brad and see if we can bring that out again. And it also helps, too, because uh, today's generation will look at some of these older works and say, well, you know, by now there must have been more modern uh, versions of that argument, and it might not be the case. So to be able to reissue them, it brings them back out into the forefront to people who might have just dismissed them based solely on the age of the book. That's, that's true. That's true. And, you know, when you have a new presentation, a new cover. It's interesting, though, my book, <clears throat> Strange Guest, which I wrote in 1966, at the suggestion of Ivan T. Sanderson. It's on the poltergeist phenomena. I, I think you have a copy of that, don't you? Uh, no, I don't Strange think Strange guess? No, but I mean, everybody talks, it's a classic. Well, it, again, Ivan insisted that he find someone to write it because he felt that the poltergeist phenomena, now we should just explain that for some people, that's the phenomena where... Objects fly across the room, dishes crash against the wall, uh, the uh, flames can burst out. Uh, it eventually will evolve sometimes if it goes long enough to it. It even has a voice, but it's physical. That's the point. It's physical manifestations. 
So Ivan was convinced that this was the one paranormal phenomenon that could be proved to science. And he wanted someone, he looked for someone. I was, at that time, I mean, we're going back to like 1963, and I was writing a weekly column for a paper, a tabloid paper that's disappeared. Uh, the National Tatler came out of Chicago. I had a, a weekly column called A Walk on the Weird Side. And Ivan wrote me a fan letter. And, you know, to me, having one of my child, my own childhood heroes write to me and compliment me and, and say, you know, how accurate and so forth. And we began a correspondence. And at that time, he was acquisitions editor for a publishing house. So we were going to do the book. And then that fell through. And then when I was brought to New York to finish the biography of Rudolph Valentino, sitting around talking with publishers, and some people started asking me, aren't you interested in strange things like ghosts and dreams and so forth? And I said, yes, I am. And the editor of Ace Books, we were discussing the poltergeist. And so Ivan ended up writing the foreword to it, and then I wrote the book. And now the cases are... The, the most modern cases, I will say, and I will freely admit, you know, are 1966, mm -hmm. 1965. But interestingly, the research, the scientific research, is just as valid today as it was then, because unfortunately, it hasn't been proven to science. In spite of all the films, in spite of all the videos, in spite of all the demonstrations, in spite of all the people who are afflicted by the phenomena, we were talking earlier, guys, it's the same thing. You know, you, and when I was teaching in college, <clears throat> I remember one time, I, I used to dread going into the, the lunchroom because there are a couple young professors, young, young women there, Vassar graduates, <laughs> who were into my books, and they were always arguing with this science department that, what I was doing was legitimate. I was doing truth. I mean, this was real. And then I would come in just in time to say, tell them, Brad, tell them. You know, <laughs> man, all that gave me was an upset stomach trying to eat lunch and defend myself with the biology department. I didn't have trouble with the physics department, but the biology department. And I remember one time I, I was just, you know, sometimes you just kind of stumble. and uh, nah. This day I was brilliant. And the head of the biology department, I just matched him on everything. He said everything, everything, everything. All the answers were coming to me. And finally he said, okay, I don't care. I don't care if it is real, but I still won't believe it. Now, that was a earth-changing moment for me, a life-changing, a worldview, because I realized I could go door to door, you know, <laughs> trying to prove it. But there would always be someone who says, you can't prove it to me, or even if it's real, I won't believe it. So that's why, as at a 30-year-old in 1966, I decided I'm not going to try to convince anyone anymore. I'm not going to argue with anyone anymore. I'm just going to present what is exciting to me, and it's up to the individual to make up his or her own mind, his Absolutely. or her own mind. And and hopefully, fortunately, uh, enough people will read these books and 
n- not being pressured to believe will then start to take it into consideration. It's one thing when you can read about it on your own and make that own determination. It's another thing when somebody's standing there telling you, I can prove it to you, or, or uh, you know, I've had experiences, let me share them with you, and kind of forcing it down their throat. Right, right. No, I realize you can't, you can't force it down anyone. I mean, you, you, these are, and I'm sure some people, when we asked that question earlier, and, and, and you said, well, do they have to experience it for themselves? Well, now at this point, I really believe that's so. Mm-hmm. You can present a good case. You can present an argument. And I'm not try, trying to be at all diffident, but I think it's, it is something like love. You know, you can talk about it. Someone can tell you about it. But until you experience it, or it's the same way with music. I mean, and you know, Louis Armstrong's famous quote when someone says, what's jazz? And he says, if you have to ask, you'll probably never know. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are these are related to true life experiences it's not that it's emotional so that i'm not saying that in terms of love we can't make that analogy but it has to be experienced before it's really understood it has to be grasped now some people will just say boy i really love so and so and they'll say i believe he really does love his wife or his sweetheart they don't need proof other people who require proof, then they'll have to experience love for themselves, to use that analogy again, before they truly accept it and understand. Unfortunately, yeah. it's With love, you hope that everybody experiences it at least once or, or twice in their so. life. But with something like the paranormal, what we're talking about here, people can go their entire life without experiencing it. Exactly. Especially unless they're looking for it. I mean, exactly. you have to be willing to accept it into your life to ha- to have that experience. But how many emails do I get? How many emails do you get where it begins and saying, "I never believed this until," mm-hmm. "I never believed this until," they had the personal experience, whether it's UFOs, whether it's ghosts, any aspect of the paranormal. How many emails do you get? that say that. I or never believed it until. Or they'll start with, I don't even believe in this, but you know, <laughs> yeah, they're, yeah, they're okay. still refusing to believe in it, but they just want a little bit of assurance. <laughs> right, right. Now, uh, you know, we, we talked a little bit, too, about your personal experiences uh, in, in your young life that led you into this, but uh, I was just glancing through the forward to Real Ghosts, Restless Spirits, and Haunted Places, and you talk about a farmhouse you bought in 1973 where your family actually experienced uh, some activity in that home. Incredible, incredible. And, you know, uh, my uh, older son will be 50, and the youngest daughter is uh, 40-some, and we'll never get together. And the, eventually the topic will change, but we'll turn to that house. Mm-hmm. Again, it just was a life-altering experience for the entire family. And every time, this is incredible, one of the kids, I have four, one of the kids will bring up something they've never mentioned before, an experience they've never told me about before in that house. It was just an incredible experience. And the gamut of, of haunting phenomena it, it um, you know, I, I know I, I don't want to take up a lot of time detailing it now, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, 
It, and I think the youngest child epitomized it not terribly long ago when she said to me, Dad, you know, at the time, it was a horrible experience. She was the youngest. I mean, she, if anything, she got the brunt. Maybe the youngest and the oldest. Well, I guess they all did. I mean, they've all brought up stories of the horrors they went through. But the youngest child said, you know, as terrible as it was, she says, at least I have proof that there's life after death. Exactly. And that is what struck me about that, uh, how you relate that experience is that, and you talk about in detail, and everybody should really definitely pick up a copy of this book if you're interested in the subject, but you you do go into detail about some of the horrific experiences that they experienced, and for somebody to be able to take away something so positive from something that was so negative. Well, at the time, she didn't think it was very <laughs> positive, the oh. poor little girl. But, you know, it it is fascinating to see how many people have that kind of life-altering experience where they, they undergo... Uh, Another interesting thing from that same book that you just triggered in my mind, the book that you mentioned, Real Ghosts, I delineate one case in there which really kind of affected me. And uh, this is a very strange thing. And it's one I will still, you know, it's been many, many years, it will still come back to haunt me. Just little aspects of it. No pun. No, no, no pun at all. And incredibly, I heard from now, this was some years ago, and I asked that the children be removed, and this was a case where I heard a ghost child and saw the ghost child that was so real that I berated the woman and said, I told you, don't have any children while we're doing the investigation. And she got pale and said, all the children are gone. That's one of the ghosts that haunt us. And to be, I mean, it was, she was so real. I mean, you know, I was deceived. I mean, it was, she was so real, the, the ghost. And I received a, a letter and said, you know, I was reading your book, Real Ghosts, and she says, you know, the one case, she says, I think that was the house that I grew up in. And we lived in when I was just a little girl. I do remember you coming or someone coming to that house to, to investigate. Well, it turned out to be the very same one. And beautifully, her mother kept a journal of the haunting. And she sent me then a copy of that journal. It's an incredible record of the experiences family underwent, which were really incredibly dramatic and very frightening. But again, I have to admit, now, we felt when we left that we had put things to rest and pacified the entities, but I guess that was not the case, because in the lady's journal, the mother's journal that was sent to me all these many years later, she says, we can't take it any longer. We're moving out. That was one of the last entries. So, um, you know, you, you can't always succeed, as I know you found out. Sometimes the, the energy is that powerful, that negative, permeates the residence so strongly that, you know, the house just becomes 
possessed. The house becomes possessed. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's just so strong it wears down any ability you have to fight it any longer. Yeah, we, we thought. We went out feeling very, very good. We, we thought we had really, uh, and I guess, you know, we did, uh, what shall we say, we did lower the volume for a while, but then it, it came back so that they, they just couldn't take any longer and they moved out. And it was an incredible home. It was a huge mansion, and they, they left it. They left it. And that is in uh, Real Ghost, Restless Spirits, and Haunted Places, one of 162 titles, <laughs> which are all listed on bradandsherry.com, right? Yes, yes, they're listed under the Meet Brad. You go to Meet Brad, and there you see the complete list. And we've hardly mentioned your wife tonight. <laughs> we have about four minutes left. Let's at least uh, talk about your wife a little bit and some of the, I mean, she's co-authored a number of these books oh, with yes. her as, as well. Well, she's an incredibly remarkable woman. She is Swedish Chippewa, and right now she's doing a sweat because that's part of, you know, she is an ordained minister, she was on staff at the Lutheran School of Theology, but she combines uh, Christianity with the native ways. She studied with many, many medicine doctors and shaman, and uh, at this very moment, she's she's doing a sweat down in our own little sweat lodge. So uh, she, right out of seminary, and they don't teach this in the Lutheran <laughs> seminary. She was asked to do an exorcism. Now, she was brought up in a very kind of fundamentalist tradition. She had never really seen many movies. She hadn't seen the movie The Exorcist. She has seen it since, and as she said, if she'd seen the movie, she probably wouldn't have been so brave. But she encountered a case where the woman actually was levitating, was uh, flopping and, and doing incredible things, and that was her initiation. And she did what what the only thing that occurred to her she prayed she prayed and she brought prayer energy and you know did calm the woman so that uh, she could uh, receive in this case uh, uh, medical attention but you know that was quite an initiation for her right out of seminary to have to do an exorcism because i said they they didn't teach that in the lutheran seminary but then at least she's had you uh, alongside the rest of the way of just the number of books that you've authored together is is astounding. So uh, I guess the couple that writes together stays together, huh? That's right. Tell uh, my wife that. Because <laughs> she could really help me ease the burden a little bit. No, it, uh, it, it is just a blessing, you know, without her strength, without her incredible intuitive ability. And she's, you know, when we go into, uh, you know, a hotel or we go someplace, you know, she... She receives incredible impressions and sometimes, you know, visualizations. And we, we've been set up a couple times, and that, that's in the book, too, where we were put up in a bed and breakfast, and we didn't realize the history of it. And the next morning at breakfast, everyone was just amazed because Sherry had just seen the entire dramatization of the events that had taken place. We had no clue. We had no clue what had happened in that room, this horrible tragedy. And Sherry relived it that night, saw it being, you know, just like the energy somehow reproduced and just played itself out. That's, this happens to her a great deal. But she will not say she's psychic or she's mediumistic. <laughs> she's, she's a shaman. She's a shaman. All right, well, we're just about out of time. So 
It's <laughs> the time just flew right by, Brad. We <laughs> well, I enjoyed it. We definitely have to have you come back, especially uh, when the new book comes out. Uh, when uh, we can talk more about individual subjects instead of having to run across everything. Uh, sorry to make you go all over the place tonight, but oh, that's what I like. That's what I like. Well, uh, we'll definitely have you back on if you'll if you'll come back. I would very much like to come back. All right, thank you very much, and everybody, go to bradandsherry.com where you can get uh, all of the books. You can get all the information about how to acquire. You know, even Brad doesn't have them all, but maybe you can collect them all. <laughs> And uh, we will talk to you next week. Uh, stay, stay tuned to SpookySouthCoast.com for more information, and stay spooktacular, everybody. Rest assured, listener, that my time here has not been easy, and what you have just heard was not fiction. Although, in many a desperate moment, I most certainly wish it had been. It's over for now, it seems. Or at least, until yesterday begins again. Tomorrow, 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 tomorrow. I've got another supernaturalist.